Uh, I was going to show you a video, but unfortunately that's not going to work. Uh, we were going to watch a little scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, an oldie but a classic. Uh, hands up if you've seen that. Yeah, a number of you have seen it. So it's uh, a movie where Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, is an archaeologist who is on a quest to find the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which we've looked at before in Hebrews, and we'll look at it more today. Uh, it's a central part of the tabernacle, the old tabernacle. Um, it lived in the Holy of Holies, uh, which again we'll look at shortly, the holiest part of the tabernacle. And what happened in the movie was that these bad guys, group of Nazis, thought that they could just waltz up and open the Ark of the Covenant. It's golden, you know, it was, a, it was a treasure and they coveted this treasure. Uh, but it didn't end well for them. They got zapped uh, in, a, in a very Hollywood way uh, in the movie. Bit of Hollywood license thrown in that may not be very biblically accurate. But the general idea was pretty on the mark, which was that a holy God cannot be taken lightly. People couldn't just treat the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, like a piece of ancient treasure that you could open up and try to take. Hebrews 9 that we're looking at today is about a holy place that represents the presence of a holy God. And it deals with the issue of how an unclean, very unholy people can live in the presence of holiness. We'll see today that the, for the Israelites, there was a tension that was always there. God had come to live among them in this tabernacle. The tabernacle was an earthly place of holiness. But the way to God's presence was closed to them because of their sin. But we'll see that Jesus has made all the difference for us. He has brought the holiness of God to us in a way that makes us clean. So that we can stand before him as people who are clean from the inside out. So that's where we're going today. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you so much that you have opened the way for us to come into the presence of the holy, uh, to live face to face, to have a relationship with the holy God. We pray, Father, that we wouldn't take this lightly. We pray that you would speak to us today through your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage today begins with a description of the temple, tabernacle rather, being a place of holiness. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The word sanctuary comes from the word holy, holiness. And actually, a better translation would be something like an earthly place of holiness. The tabernacle was an earthly place of holiness. So if you've been with us before, you know that the tabernacle is talking about the tent that represented God's presence as the people moved out of Egypt initially. That's when Moses 
under God's command, set up the covenant, and it continued to be with God's people, representing God living among his people. And it was a place where the people could go and meet with God in the tent. But as we've seen before in Hebrews, God doesn't actually live in a tent. He lives in the heavens. That's a way that expresses the, the, the idea that he isn't some local God that is confined to time and space. He is the God who created the universe, who is separate from the world of human beings. In setting up the tabernacle, God was showing Israel that he was willing, in a sense, to come to them, to lower himself to our level, to become near and accessible. But he didn't stop being holy. What does holiness mean? Uh, We sometimes have uh, a kind of funny picture of holiness as involving pe- in halos and people floating around on clouds with angels' wings. Or worse, we sometimes think of people who think they are better than others and we have the expression, uh, holier than thou, don't we? But holiness in the Bible doesn't mean any of that. Holiness in the Bible describes what God is like compared with us. That he is separate, that he is totally different, that he is perfect. But these words don't even begin to capture holiness. It's the sheer goodness and glory of the one who is often described in the Bible as being like a blinding light. Because light, by definition, swallows up darkness and evil and sin. They cannot dwell together. So being holy means that God cannot live with sin, like darkness cannot exist with light. And human beings, even the best of us, have no way to stand before a holy God. So the tabernacle is this earthly place of holiness, the place where heaven comes to earth, the place where God is present with his people. But his people are sinful, unholy people. And so you can see that we've got this tension. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And it's a tension that's never really resolved in the tabernacle. And that's what the author is wanting to show us in this first section. He goes on to give us a bit of detail about the tabernacle. And it's helpful here to look at it briefly so we can better understand that what the tabernacle represented. I think we've got a picture of the tabernacle. There we go. Two things that we've touched on about God are represented in the details of the tabernacle. Actually, we should look at this in a sec. The first one is that God is a relational God who takes the initiative with his people. And it's there in verse 2. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place 
which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. So we'll go back to the diagram. This is a diagram of the inside of the temple, and you can see, um, you might not be able to see clearly, but there's three parts to it you can see. There's the outer court around the outside. Then there's the, uh, the, the holy place and the most holy place on the, on the left-hand side. Uh, it goes kind of in ascending order of holiness. Um, the people could go to the courtyard. There was no restriction about who could go into the courtyard. But then only the priests could go into the second part, the holy place. And then no one at all could go into the most holy place except the high priest once a year and only then after making a whole heap of sacrifices. The, thing that the things that the writer has just described in the verse that we read out are reminders of God's relationship with his people. So the lampstand, you can see a picture of it there. The lampstand symbolises God being a light for the people. He came down to them and gave them his word. And his word is often referred to in the Old Testament as a lamp. It's a guide, a light for the people. And then there's a table of consecrated bread. That was bread given, uh, symbolising the people giving God an offering of bread as thanks, thanksgiving. It's their response to God's goodness to them. Then in the second room is the altar of incense. Incense in the Bible is associated with prayers going up to God. Israel's relationship with God involved hearing from God and responding in prayer. It's initiated by God. They hear from God through his word. That's the image of the lamp. Then they respond to God with thanksgiving. That's the, that's the bread. And by prayer, that's the incense. And so these things symbolize God's relationship, the fact that he's a relational God. And in, this, in the center of the most holy place, remember the, the inner room, was the Ark of the Covenant which we heard about in the Indiana Jones movie. The ark contained three things. A jar of manna, Aaron's staff, and the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. All of these three things are powerful reminders of God initiating a relationship with the people and delivering them out of Egypt. When they came out of Egypt, Aaron's staff, along with Moses' staff, were kind of central to the process of God judging the people. Then as they came out of Egypt, he fed them manna. Remember, manna and quail in the wilderness. And then he cemented the relationship with them when they came to Mount Sinai and he gave them the Ten Commandments along with the whole law. So these things represent God establishing a relationship with the people. 
They are a reminder that God came down and chose a people for himself. He led them by the hand to their own land. He gave them himself to them, provided for them so that they could be his people and they, he, they could be his what I say, they could be his people and he could be their God. A visible reminder that God is a relational God who initiates relationship with his people. The other thing that the uh, things in the tabernacle point towards is the holiness of God. The holiness of God, symbolised by the fact that the tabernacle was full of gold, which is the metal of perfection. The altar of incense was made of gold. The ark was covered in gold. The jar of manna was gold. A holy God but also a God who comes down to us to have relationship with us. Two things that are held in tension. But there's one other thing in the tabernacle, in the middle of the most holy place, that points towards a way that holiness and relationship can live together. And that is in verse 5. Have a look with me at verse 5. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. On top of the ark, there's a picture of the ark, were these two angels with their wings um, cover Disappeared. You still got the picture? Anyway, there's two angels with their wings covering the, the cover of the ark. And the idea was that they were covering the glory of God because uh, the Israels, uh, God taught the Israel, uh, the Israelites that his throne was on top of the cover of the ark. Uh, it was called the, um, the atonement cover or um, literally it's called the mercy seat, the place of forgiveness. It's the mercy seat. It's the place of forgiveness. That's a better translation. And it's a pity that we lose that in English. Because the mercy seat, the place of forgiveness, describes the solution to the problem of a holy God living with a sinful people. It's only through God's mercy, which comes through his forgiveness, that we can stand in his presence. In the old covenant, in the old tabernacle, the way to forgiveness wasn't yet clear. And the tension of a holy God living with a sinful people wasn't fully resolved. And that was shown in the tabernacle. Remember that no one could go into the most holy place except the high priest once a year. That separation between holiness and the people symbolised the, the massive separation between a holy God and sinful people. And that's what the author goes on to talk about in the second half of the passage. In verse 6, the author explains that the priests would repeatedly go into the first room, the holy place, and make sacrifices and offerings. But verse 7, 
Only the high priest once a year could go into the most holy place after making sacrifices for sin. If you've got your Bibles there, have a look at it. haven't got it on the screen at the moment. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, The Holy Spirit was showing by this and the way that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. In other words, the way to holiness was still closed. The people still couldn't come into the presence of God. See how we go. Here you go, verse 8. The people still couldn't come into the presence of God. Why not? Verse 9 explains why. This is an illustration of the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. The old covenant, the old system of tabernacle and sacrifices were only ever meant as a shadow. Remember we saw that last week? They represented something better that was to come. But they themselves were not the reality. And the shadow can never do what the real thing can do. Remember last week we saw from the illustration of World Park, the, the uh, models of the Eiffel Tower and Taj Mahal, these famous places, but they're not meant to be the real thing. They're not meant to replace the real thing. They can't do what the real thing can do. And the tabernacle can't do everything that the real thing can do. It was never meant to. And so the animal sacrifices can't make us clean in the same way that the real sacrifice which we'll look at in a moment, can. These sacrifices by the priests could only could make the Israelites right on the outside. They could allow God to live in their presence and for them to go into the outer court of the tabernacle. But it couldn't make them right on the inside. They couldn't come face to face in the most holy place with, God, with their holy God. The blood of animals couldn't give them clean consciences. And friends, nothing has changed for us today. Not one of us has a conscience that we can make clean ourselves. You and I all have things we want to keep in the closet. Things we don't want to ever reveal to other people. Things we're ashamed of. None of us can pass the test of having our lives bared completely under the spotlight, can we? And that's only with each other. How do you think we go standing before a holy God? Now, there are all sorts of ways that we try to whitewash what we really like. Through religion, coming to church, giving money, doing good things. We kind of hope the scales will balance in our favour. Or we might turn to things like the power of positive thinking, practising self-affirmation to cover over negative thoughts about ourselves. But whatever thing we turn to, it's just like skin-deep whitewashing. Covers over the surface, but that's it. 
like the tabernacle and the sacrifices, none of those things can deal with the heart. And the problem with our heart is that we've all rejected God and fallen short of his standards. And so none of us can stand in the presence of a holy God. Now all that would be pretty depressing if the story ended there, wouldn't it? But there's another chapter to this story. There's another paragraph to our passage and it's the one that makes all the difference. It begins with a but and it's a big but. The big but is there in verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest to the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. Now we've heard this before, haven't we, from Hebrews. Jesus came as a different and a better high priest. The more perfect tabernacle is in heaven. Jesus has access to God's throne. He is now with the Father and he opens the way for us to come face to face with God too. Again, we've heard it before in Hebrews that he did this through his own sacrifice. A sacrifice that the old tabernacle sacrifices were only pointing to, towards uh, as a shadow. Verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood and goats uh, blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The old, the old animal sacrifices made the people right on the outside. Verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But the blood of Jesus is the real thing because it makes us right on the inside. And it's there in verse 14. The blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God is able to cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus' sacrifice is the real sacrifice. The animals, they were all just shadows. Jesus' blood does the real work that the animals never could. And the tabernacle, it was only ever a shadow for the meeting place with a holy God. We told in the New Testament that Jesus is the real tabernacle. The book of John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now the word is talking about Jesus. He became flesh. And literally it says that he pitched his tent among us. The word for tent is the same word for tabernacle. And the point of what the author is saying is that Jesus became the real tabernacle. He became the place that we meet with God. The old tabernacle kept people out of God's presence. But Jesus comes to us. He has come to us. And through him, we can stand before God face to face. 
because his blood washes our consciences. We come to God clean, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. Now, I've got to tell you, I've got a confession to make. Um, I've found Hebrews quite difficult to preach on. It's, it's not an easy book. And one of the reasons for that is that, as you've probably noticed, it repeats itself a lot. And today's chapter, you would have noticed, goes over a lot of the same ground that we've covered before. I was having a whinge to Julie about that during the week. I thought, why, why does Hebrews have to, why does it make it so difficult to preach on? And at the risk of embarrassing Julie, this is what she said. She said, well, it repeats itself for a reason. It repeats itself for a reason. And she's right. Yes, the author hammers away again and again on this idea of Jesus sacrifice forgiving completely forgiving us completely it's repetitive because it needs to be repetitive because we need to hear this message again and again and again and the reason for that is that the gospel message is radically different it's radically opposed to the way that we hardwired to think and to live. You see, we hardwired to believe that we have to make ourselves right with God, that it's up to us, that we have to make ourselves right with other people and to make ourselves right with God. And we spend a whole, our whole lives dealing with a sense of shame and guilt. Because we know deep down that we just don't measure up. Even, we don't even measure up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And so that's why we turn to religion, self-improvement, stuff like that. We are trying to cover up our own sin. We're trying to kind of erase the deficit and tip the scales in our favour. But the problem, friends, is that we can't do it. No matter how hard we try. We can't tame our own nagging conscience that eats away at us. And the reason we can't do that is that we can't change our heart. We can try to change New Year's resolutions, self-discipline, various techniques. But really, we only end up shaving a few things off the edges. We can't change our hearts. And God's assessment is that the human heart is desperately evil. What that means isn't that we're all Hitlers or Stalins. No, what it means is that left to ourselves, each one of us is utterly incapable of loving God and going his way. And we can't fix that problem ourselves. And that's why Hebrews 9 is good news 
It's exactly what we need because it provides a solution where God has come down and fixed the problem for us. Jesus' blood has done what our own sacrifices and sweat and efforts can never do. It makes us clean because Jesus paid our deficit. He dealt with our sin. Now you and I can stand before the holy, perfect God, free of guilt and shame. How much more, verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. You see, a free conscience frees us to love and serve God, not out of guilt, not out of a sense of deficit, but freely out of gratitude and a thankful heart. You see, if you know that you are forgiven, it frees you to serve. But if you're doing stuff out of guilt, you're not free at all. And you're not serving out of thankfulness or joy. It's a burden and not a joy. God looks at you and sees you, sees not your sin. He doesn't see your anger or the thoughts that you're trying to desperately to hide from others. God looks at you and sees you as clean because of Jesus' blood, if you trust in him. Because Jesus, our high priest, became the real tabernacle that lives with us. Because he made a perfect sacrifice once for all time that pays for your sin and mine completely. And now we can stand before our holy God with a clean conscience, knowing that we are loved and accepted by him. I'll get the band up and why don't we pray as we do that. Father God, we thank you so much uh, that um, you have come down as our tabernacle to live among us, that you have opened the way for us to uh, stand face to face with a holy God. Thank you that you have done that, Lord, not just by making us clean on the outside, but you have changed our heart and that we are clean on the inside. Thank you, Father, that because of Jesus and that we can come to you without shame and guilt and we can be transparent and without shame with each other as well. Father, thank you that you have opened the way for us to serve the living God with clean consciences and because of that we can serve with freedom, with joy and thankfulness and we ask that you would help us to do that. Amen.